I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration recently released long-awaited draft guidance regarding the naming of biologics, biosimilars, and interchangeable biologics. At the same time, the agency released a proposed rule to apply the naming scheme to six current biological products with, or expected soon to have, biosimilar competitors. We spoke to Jillian Woollett, Senior Vice President with the Healthcare Business Strategy and Public Policy Advisory Firm, Avalier Health, about the FDA's actions, their implications, and some potential unintended consequences. Jillian, thanks for joining us. Pleased to be able to join you today. We're going to discuss the emerging world of biosimilars today, recent draft guidance from the U.S. Food and Drug Administration about the naming of biologics, biosimilars, and interchangeable biologics, and some unintended consequences that may go with that. Perhaps you can begin by telling us what the FDA has proposed. So the FDA has proposed two things. One is a draft guidance. They're inviting comments on this draft guidance for the renaming, essentially, of all biologic products in the U.S., potentially. And that, um, then they've also proposed a regulation, and a regulation is enforceable, a draft guidance is just advisory. And in the regulation, they're proposing the renaming, the renaming as in the re- non-proprietary naming of six specific products that are already approved and on the market in the United States. This new naming regime, if it goes through, will not only affect biosimilars, as you mentioned, but the name of so-called originator biologics. How broad are the impacts potentially here? The impacts are actually very, very significant because most, in fact, five out of the six of the products to be renamed are these so-called originator standalone biologics. So the initial impact is actually much, much greater on those originators. We only have one biosimilar licensed and approved in the U.S. And then FDA itself is saying in this proposed regulation that they're proposing this action with respect to these six products because of the need to encourage routine usage of designated suffixes, that's these suffixes they're proposing to the non-proprietary name, in ordering, prescribing, dispensing, record-keeping, and pharmacovigilance practices for these products. That's a lot of stakeholders that then have to be able to accommodate these non-standard names throughout their electronic systems, their safety alert systems, etc. Uh, how has industry acted, both, both innovator companies and those focused on generics and biosimilars? Have we heard a lot yet from them? We haven't heard much yet. This regulation and the associated draft guidance were only formally announced in the Federal Register on the 28th of August. I think there's a lot of surprise, and there's a lot of mulling through what this actually means. And I think a lot of the people that will be impacted 
aren't those that are traditionally regulated by the FDA, so they may not need to be aware that this is coming down the pike. And what's important in that context is FDA put out this proposal. The reg has a 75-day comment period, so the comments have to be in by, um, I guess, the 11th of November. And then the guidance has a 60-day comment period, so the comments for those would have to be in by the 27th of October. Then there's an uncertain period during which FDA considers the comments, but when they issue the regulation as it's expected that they will, at that point, there's only 90 days before it has to be being implemented. Mm -hmm. So we have an uncertain time when the reg would essentially be being posed on all of the stakeholders who need to comply. When you look at the proposed regulations, how do they compare to what's been done in other countries in terms of how they've handled the issue of naming? This is completely different. No other country has done anything like this at all. So Europe has 22 approved biosimilars. They just were given the same name as their reference product because by fact of having been approved as a biosimilar, they had been shown to be highly similar to that reference. And Europe, which is the leader in this space, basically said that's the same standard as we apply for comparability to manufacturing changes, the highly similar product policy attribute standard. We don't rename when a sponsor goes through a manufacturing change for their product. We're not going to require any sort of difference in the non-proprietary name for biosimilars. So in the US, while this applies to all biologics, it has been somewhat precipitated by the eminence of biosimilars. But I would like to say, meanwhile, there's a parallel activity at the World Health Organization, WHO, who manage globally the so-called International Non-Proprietary Naming System, the INN. WHO has been asked by some countries who prescribe by non-proprietary name, not the brand name, if they will come up with a system to distinguish between all different biologics that contain the same active ingredients and are produced by different manufacturers. They have proposed what's called a biologic qualifier. However, that BQ, while also for consonants, is completely separate from the non-proprietary name. It doesn't become part of the non-proprietary name. So there's a lot of confusion out there right now that what FDA is proposing is the same as WHO. No, they're completely different. And I think it's a very, very important distinction to make. I think a lot of people, when they think about the, the naming regimes, think in terms of the, their impact on, on drug makers. But as you've noted, this is a policy that could have ramifications for various participants in the, the healthcare system well beyond drug makers. It, it, it's actually an IT issue, as you've talked about. Can, can you explain the, those implications? So we have this standardized format, and it's called in the United States the U.S adopted name, the USAN. That is a particular data field. It's also known as the non-proprietary name, or as FDA has said here for biologics, the established name or the proper name. It is what in the generic drug space we would call the generic name. So it's the name that says to all prescribers, users, physicians, healthcare professionals that, for instance, you've got aspirin in this medicine. Then you have a brand name, which is the name that a particular producer creates that's the marketed name that has the brand recognition. 
So people often prescribe by the brand name. It's designed to be recognizable. It's designed to be clear if it's handwritten. It's designed to be pronounceable in the local language. So the brand name can vary in different countries around the world. But since 1952, when WHO was given the authority on non-proprietary naming, we've had this effort that physicians everywhere in the world know the same which products contain the same active ingredient. And there's been a lot of effort managed through the United States Pharmacopeia that the USAN and the INN match. So this is an established data field that's tracked in all of the safety monitoring systems. And it goes all the way through so that you have, say, a safety alert that if somebody has an immunological response to one particular product that contains an active ingredient, they don't get given another product that contains the same active ingredient. So it's a bundling term that is behind a lot of the systems that go all the way through healthcare. So if we then make it that the non-proprietary name is actually unique to each product, we've got to make sure that all of this software coding can capture when two different products with brand names actually are still containing the same active ingredient in terms of, say, immunogenicity or a safety issue. So all of those systems have to be ready to accommodate whatever new naming conventions are ultimately required of the biologics manufacturers, because those will be the names that are then on the labels of the product. And so... They have to know what the system's going to be. They have to design the software to accommodate it. And they either have to include the suffix within the non-proprietary naming field and have software written to group the products, or they have to come up with a new field that somehow is always appropriately recorded and reported, etc. And so I do have some concern that if they're not involved in this space right now and don't know this is happening, they may not be ready to be able to implemented and ensure that the system actually works. One of the issues driving the FDA's decision is to prevent inadvertent substitution of a biosimilar for an originator product. Unlike generic drugs, which are chemically synthesized, biosimilars are not identical to the original products because they're produced by living cells. How does this complicate the issue of substituting one product for another? Is there a case to be made for or against interchangeability? Well, where this becomes particularly interesting is that when you have a non-proprietary name at the moment, the products are not, that matches between two different products, and we have some 80 of those products approved by the FDA and currently marketable, and some of them are on the market. So we have shared non-proprietary names right now between biological products. There is no evidence that I've ever seen that those are being inadvertently switched. These are all branded products. Very few of them actually go through the pharmacy. And if we look at what interchangeability means, interchangeability in the statute that is allowing biosimilars, the Biologic Price Competition and Innovation Act that was part of the Affordable Care Act, all interchangeability means is that the pharmacist can substitute those products designated as interchangeable, subject to state law, if they FDA has basically designated two biologics as interchangeable. It's actually a information for the pharmacist. It's nothing to do with prescribing. 
because a physician can always prescribe whatever they want. They can switch the products if they want. So less than 1% of biologics routinely goes through the retail pharmacy would even be subject to interchangeability. Now, what's even more important is that you get designated as a biosimilar when you're highly similar and FDA's agreed that there's not going to be any clinically meaningful differences if you use the biosimilar compared to the reference. The interchangeability designation is actually about switching any given patient between the two products and showing there's not a problem. But the product itself will be the same. It's a two-step process. You've already been designated as biosimilar. Then you, if you choose, seek this interchangeability designation in addition. But because the product is unchanged, it's actually a regulatory requirement for presumably the sponsor expecting, expecting a greater market. So do I anticipate there's any safety issue at all? No, because I think you cannot fail interchangeability and actually show you're not interchangeable without having shown you weren't biosimilar in the first place. Is it clear what companies have to do to establish interchangeability at this point? Not really. As a legal matter, you have to demonstrate that switching is not a problem for a given patient between the originator and the reference in terms of safety and efficacy. So as a legal matter, you're asked to prove a negative. As a regulatory matter, you are assuring the FDA that switching is not going to be a problem without the involvement of the original prescriber, i.e. they're as, as similar to each other as is necessary to give the same clinical outcome. How you do as a regulatory matter demonstrate that to the FDA is presumed to require clinical switching studies and showing that the outcome of unswitched cohorts is the same as switched cohorts, but those can become fairly expensive studies. And so the question becomes commercially, is it cost effective to do those studies for the expectation you have of a bigger market? Well, given that most of the products are not going through retail settings in which it's the authority of the pharmacist that matters, it may not be that many sponsors do those studies. Given the, the FDA's proposal, does this suggest anything to you about how robust the market will see for biosimilars and the cost savings that may be realized from their introduction? I think it's very open to question. It is not trivial to get a biosimilar approved. It is a very expensive proposition. The traditional generic is said to cost $1 to $5 million to get to approval. The innovators, they talk about, you know, one to two billion. For biosimilars, there's various estimates out there, but they're of the 250 million range. So the undertaking is considerable. I do think we will see competition in the biologic space, but whether it is through biosimilars and the, the challenges of this new 351K pathway, I'm not sure. I think we may see sponsors decide to go after the market but use the traditional originator pathway and mm. traditional development simply because then you don't have to demonstrate this high similarity, which as an analytical and technical challenge is absolutely massive and upfront cost. Well, we've had the first biosimilar product in the United States just go on the market with Novartis' introduction of its biosimilar for Amgen's and Neupogen. The company priced the drug at just a 15% discount to Neupogen, a substantially smaller discount than you see from generics, but 
I would say smaller than the 30% savings I think a lot of people expected from biosimilars initially. Is this a surprise? Does it suggest anything about how this market may evolve? I think it's not clear. I would say that when you only have one generic, you don't traditionally see the huge discount. So it's really not a generic market until you have multiple entrants. So that's one aspect of it. Another aspect is there's a lot of activity, I'm sure, and I know none of it in specific behind the scenes in terms of contracting strategies. We have fairly complex system in the U.S. But also, if you look to Europe, it took a while. Their first biosimilar was Omnitrope, also a Sandoz product, one of the Novartis Group companies. And that product was approved launch in 06. It was also launched here in the U.S. at the same time as a 505B2 drug. And there, the, it was launched at a 50% discount. But depending on the channels, that can be a disadvantage because if the physician is paid as a proportion of the cost of the drug, it's a disadvantage to make the drug too cheap. So I think there's a certain amount of caution but there's also a lot of other numbers behind the scenes that are going to be equally pertinent, and it's going to take a while to learn. But most of all, when you have a single competitor, I don't think we should expect massive discounts. And even in Europe, depending on the nature of each of the countries and their healthcare systems, the discounts have varied massively for the same product launched in the different markets at the same time. Well, the United States has been a laggard in terms of biosimilars. How have we seen the market evolve elsewhere? And, and is there a reason to expect the United States will be similar or, or different in the way its biosimilar market evolves? I think the U.S. is going to be very, very different simply because the healthcare system here is so different. Most other countries, particularly in Europe, but also in Australia, Canada, Japan, all these places have a much greater focus on a national healthcare system that's run through the government. And I think that has immediate implications. It is also very important for these biologics, which are largely specialty products, what the setting of care is. And I think it's going to be very different, for instance, for some products that are used in acute settings or life-saving settings, such as the oncologics, versus the chronic use settings for some of the debilitating diseases, such as some of the rheumatoid diseases. So I think you have to look by product, by channel, by therapeutic area, and that's all the more so in the U.S., given our diversified health care. Well, the guidance from the FDA has been a long time coming. From a regulatory point of view, what's the timetable forward, and are there other issues that remain to be resolved before we see the gate fully open on biosimilars in the United States? I think there's a huge way to go. There's a bunch of other guidances that have been promised. I would emphasize guidance is only guidance. It doesn't have enforceability. It's the best current thinking of the agency. It's very, very useful to the industry, obviously, to have FDA's perspective. But that's very, very different from a reg, which is a regulation or a rule, which is enforceable. So the guidance is useful. I think there'll be a lot of comments go into the FDA that they will consider. There's also some outstanding citizen petitions from four companies that go, and trade associations that go all the way back to 2013 on the whole naming issue. This has been a debate that's been going on for a long time, approaching a decade. So I think there's a lot of discussion to be had and what will be interesting will be the finalization of the reg itself 
We'll also be able to tell a lot if there are some more approvals of biosimilars in the imminent future. And we know publicly of four other applications that are in and under review by the FDA. One of them is to New Lassera, Pegfilgrastin. There's another, another Filgrastin in. There's also an Epoetin in, and then there's the Infliximab. So if FDA makes any decisions on those other biosimilar applications, those will also provide tea leaves to be read about how the agency is approaching biosimilars and biologics writ large. Jillian Lewitt, Senior Vice President with the Healthcare Business Strategy and Public Policy Advisory Firm, Avalier Health. Jillian, thanks so much for your time today. Anytime. Thank you. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send an email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.